0: Greetings again, everyone. I'm very thankful that my eternal creator, God, has never lost his temper with me. I know that I have made him angry. The Bible plainly says so. I know that I have, on many occasions, grieved him. The Bible tells me that. I know that like any loving parent, when my heavenly Father sees me thinking, acting, saying, doing things that are contrary to his law and his will, that like any other parent, he can become irked, bothered, irritated, even wrathful or angry. But never once has God ever lost his temper. The way we grow up as we are little children is, first of all, obviously, physically. Physically and gradually our parents teach us to control our physical bodily processes and that's a painful thing all by itself it's like teaching dogs and cats to become housebroken little by little we learn those things and we are growing very very rapidly when I see some of these nature series and I learn how rapidly little baby seals or killer whales or dolphins can grow on their mother's milk which is many many times fatter than human milk and how huge they can become in such a short period of time. It's incredible really how rapidly children do grow or babies of any species, especially the mammalia or mammals. It's incredible to me how quickly my grandchildren are growing up. Already the little babies that we were holding in arms just a few months ago and that were barely able to pull up and walk around their crib are now toddling and running all over the place. And before very long, they will be doing like my grandson Michael and throwing a baseball and even getting up on water skis and doing all sorts of things. And you turn around twice as the song goes. You turn around, turn around, and there are three, turn around, and there are four, a young girl going out the door, turn around, turn around, and your children have grown up. We grow up physically, and as we are growing and the world with Satan's influence is presented before our startled eyes, all of the marvelous entertainment and all of the wonderful things to engage and arrest our attention and to absorb our thoughts, uh, he has managed to put into our minds millions of words, of nuances, expressions, suggestions, situations, scenarios that we're really not able to cope with. So by the time we're a teenager with pimples and acne to worry us, And by the time we go to our first prom dance, our bodies have matured. Young boys, 15, 16, 17, are already perfectly capable of becoming fathers. Young girls, sometimes as early as 11 or 12, are perfectly capable of becoming mothers. They are perfectly capable, that is, physiologically. But the last way we grow up is spiritually, and the next to the last way we ever grow up is emotionally, and believe it or not, most of the human race never achieves either spiritual or emotional maturity. Very few people are really in control of their emotions. I'm so thankful that Almighty God has never thrown a tantrum. Imagine the power that God has. Imagine what he could do. If he threw a tantrum. Now, if you want to go look at what happens when a great archdemon that has limited power, but nevertheless had such power that God calls him the prince of the power of the air, and had one-third of the angels who were doing his bidding, and actually attempted to mount up an attack, warfare. There was war in heaven. And that great dragon, that old serpent called Satan and the devil, was thrown out. And with him, a third of the angels that are now demonic spirits that followed Satan in his rebellion. He attempted to overthrow God. When the Bible says in the beginning, God created, the Hebrew word bara, the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, the Hebrew word is really the world or the earth became without form and void. The rocks prove an earlier pre-Adamic creation. It is not absolutely certain that all dinosaurs of all varieties that we find in fossil rocks lived from the time of Adam to the time of Noah and were exterminated in the Noatian deluge. That is not impossible that many of them did in those areas of the world that were not yet inhabited and that mankind had not yet overspread because man basically inhabited mostly just Europe, northern Africa, the Middle East, probably as far as India and China and up into Scandinavia, but probably not to a great extent in the first one-sixth of human history in what we know as the New World or down in Australia and other areas. Well, as academic as that may sound, the Bible very clearly allows for a complete destruction of this earth and an earlier, beautiful, perfect creation which was wrecked and ruined by a titanic struggle. When you look at the surface of the moon and the planets that we can see with our telescopes and space probes, you see wreckage, lifelessness, a misshapen hulk, huge craters that are the result of the impact of space debris. Here a few weeks ago, I was talking about, I was going out in my backyard and enjoying the what appeared to be a pyrotechnic show when we went through a belt of all kinds of meteorites. I don't know how many of you went outside that night and looked at them, but I did, and it was spectacular the few that I did get to see. Apparently some parts of the world saw more of them than others, but it is again testimony to the fact that our solar system attracts tremendous clouds of broken bits and pieces of rocks. How did they get there? Did God form them that way? Did God form the surface of the moon, or was the surface of the moon at one time completely round and has been impacted over these years with gigantic meteoroids that have caused huge craters over a hundred and some miles across to be formed, obviously the latter. There was a great battle. It all began with a certain emotion that is called vanity. It began with a beautiful creature that Almighty God made and named him with a beautiful name called Lightbringer, shining star of the dawn, first light called Lucifer, that's the Latin word, and it's not an evil word even though we think of it as being an evil word, Lucifer was a beautiful word. In Spanish, uh, as a matter of fact, you know that sometimes people ask for un lucifer to light un cigarillo because the word Lucifer means a match. Well, that's unfortunate because there's nothing sulfuric or nothing that has to do with infernal regions or fires connected with the name Lucifer. If you'll turn to Ezekiel 28, we'll take a quick look at that. Last week I mentioned to you that oftentimes people totally forget there is a Satan who is alive and active on planet Earth and that I had been the unfortunate witness to not one but many different occasions when those who would pull themselves up to their lofty, pharisaical, judgmental heights would be dealing with poor, hapless individuals in a given local congregation who had been caught up in a sin, had made some mistakes, had had some fleshly appetites run away with them, and they'd given in to them, and they'd made some mistakes. And all of a sudden, even though these ministers, as I said to refresh your memory, could deliver any number of sermons about Satan and about sin, suddenly there wasn't any devil that was a partner with individuals in sin. If you recall, it was the title of the sermon last week, that we had a partner in sin. It is well that we remember that because the Bible is replete, especially in the writings of Paul and of Peter, who says, remember that Satan the devil has a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan does not usually attack you, Physically, no matter what some people might say. Satan comes at you from another perspective, another dimension, another area, and that will be the area of your life that is the weakest. Notice what it says about how beautiful he was, chapter 28 and verse 12, in the middle of it, where it goes from the type to the anti-type here. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. How did he look? Remember the sermon I preached some years ago? The Hebrew word is nakash. You can get a tape on that if you wish. And actually, the aspect of the creature that appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden is really not given. It merely says that he was a magnetic, engaging, enchanting whisperer. But what he looked like is left for the speculation of you know, going through the scriptures of Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Isaiah the sixth chapter and to find out whether or not he looked more like a dragon or looked more like a carob, like a great man-headed, lion-bodied ox or something of this nature. We're not really told. Perfect in beauty. That means something that is absolutely stunning if you would look at him. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Now, you will see someone like Elvis before he died years ago or some country western entertainer dance out onto a stage with a jacket that is actually all diamonds and sequins and rubies and so on. And it is a dazzling aspect. Satan the devil apparently was actually covered with sardonyx, topaz, diamonds, pearls, onyx, jasper, sapphires, emeralds and so on and gold. Something so spectacular that it would just dazzle your mind. There is something interesting here that I won't take time to go into about the workmanship of Tabras and Pipes, but it has to do with the origin of music, and it has to do with the myth of Pan, and who is the half-goat, the rough-goat, and half-man playing on the flute. "...was prepared in you from the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God." Wherever that is, and we tend to think that it might have been the earth and it was called the Holy Mountain of God because it was in the region of where Palestine is today or Jerusalem, which is very likely the very area of ancient Eden. Eden was not up between the present confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River because all those river drainages and all those mountain ranges were dramatically altered during the Noatian deluge, and the pre noachian world was topographically and geographically greatly different from the post-Noatian world when the ark settled on Ararat. So, and Hebrew tradition says the same thing, and so does Arabic tradition, that Eden was in the area where the city of Jerusalem is today. The holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Apparently it was such a glittering area that there would be a big outcropping of gold over here and diamonds lying around the stream bed over here, and it would have been just, uh, you know, bonanza to any uh, would-be gold-searcher or discoverer who would come in there, prospector trying to get rich on minerals and precious metals. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till sin, lawlessness, iniquity was discovered down in there somewhere. Now, think about this for a minute. There are a lot of things about a lot of you that none of the rest of you know. I can come to know you physically. We meet, we shake hands, hi, how are you? And immediately I know whether you're taller than I am or shorter, whether you're bigger or thinner, whether you're darker or lighter, whether you're older or younger, within reason. We, we, we meet and we see the whole person. We hear the timbre and tone of the voice. We feel the firmness or lack of, it of the handshake. We look into the eyes and we see whether there's furtiveness, uh, embarrassment, look up, look down, or, or a nice, friendly, whatever. And we have this first impression when we meet people. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it's important to realize in context with what I want to talk to you about today. There's something I can't know, and that is what you were thinking five or ten minutes ago, what you were thinking just the moment before I said hello. And what you will be thinking the moment after we part. You could be thinking, there goes that stupid, rotten so and so, oh boy, this and that, and I wouldn't have the faintest idea because it would be a complete secret from me. It is not a secret from God, but only Almighty God can know your thoughts. You cannot know each other's thoughts. You cannot know my thoughts. Now, husbands and wives gradually get to the point to where they think they can know each other's thoughts. And sometimes they're pretty close. I think wives are better than that than husbands are. I think she can sit there and look at you and say, I know what you were thinking just then. You've got to be careful because a lot of times you gave it away by your body language, right, or the look on your face. And sometimes it, it will really irk you to have your wife read your mind that well and you'll say, be careful now, I wasn't either. I was thinking something else. But she may be closer than you think she was. But even in spite of that, of how close husbands and wives can grow over 20, 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, they still cannot really read each other's innermost thoughts. Those are always private. The emotion, and the word motion is important in the word emotion. There's an awful lot of motion in emotion. Emotion is the way most people never grow up. Let me just give you the dictionary definition of emotion here, since we're dealing with it. It means, and I quote, to stir up, like an egg beater down in there, you know, just like something got inside your viscera in your mind and just was churning it up. To stir up, to disturb the affective aspect of consciousness, the affectation to affect it, A psychic and physical reaction subjectively experienced as strong feeling and physiologically involving changes like the face, a smile, a scowl, a look of startled fear, a look of apprehension, a look of utter disgust or contempt as strong feeling and physiologically involving changes. Let me tell you about one of those. You're driving along, you're completely blissfully unaware, you've got it on cruise control, and all of a sudden, you look in a rearview mirror and there's a policeman right behind you. What happens to your heart? Squirt, bunch of adrenaline. And you're going like that. Where did he come from? He must have been hiding in my trunk. That's what, you know, Bill Cosby said. And it scares you after that. And absolutely, your old body is just trembling like this when something like that happens and you weren't prepared for it. Physiologically involving changes which prepare the body for immediate, vigorous action. I'm here to tell you that there are documented cases of people lifting weights, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, in a dire emergency, like, say, a car or a stagecoach that the normal man could stand there and train on weights for five years and never be able to lift it And yet, in an emergency, because his wife or his child was pinned beneath it, he actually threw that thing off of her. And there have been cases like that that have been documented. Where instantly, because of this infusion of adrenaline and this fear, almost superhuman strength has been granted to people in a great emergency. So emotion. The motion in emotion often occurs before the mind controls it. Isn't that correct? How many people have you known who you say are a basket case? talk about people who are an emotional wreck, a nervous wreck. We talk about being freaked out, or people who snapped, or people who twisted off, or people who simply went crazy. There are those in our society who just got overloaded, just sort of like a current limiter that wasn't active, or an overpressurization relief valve that didn't work in machinery, and bang, and suddenly they have lost it. And unfortunately, there is a hospital right down here within a very few miles of us at Rusk, where there are many inmates who emotionally lost it. That is why, brethren, mothers and fathers, grandparents, future mothers and fathers, it is so incredibly important to teach a child to control their emotions. Why it is so terribly important to have a time when you teach them just for one hour to sit still. How terribly important it is to teach them for just one hour to be quiet, to teach them about controlling their emotions, because it's the last way most of us ever grow up. Look what happened in the case of Lucifer, perfect Lucifer, beautiful Lucifer, the anointed cherub who was light bringer, who was a flawless part of God's creation, but God gave Lucifer and Michael and Gabriel minds and he gave them emotion. And they were able to make a choice. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and you have sinned, it says, till iniquity was found, was discovered in you. It wasn't discoverable by looking at him. He was still beautiful. But down inside, an emotion had begun to work. A thought occurred to him, and that's the private thought that nobody else was privy to. What if? What if I went for all of it? What if I attempted to just move God out of here, because after all, God isn't doing it perfectly. I'd rather do it my way. I'd rather do something that God is not doing. He's not creating things the way I would do it. And he began to allow that to become like a little root, and it put out the little tendrils, and it put up a shoot. It became fully developed. It became his idea, baby. And he began to nurture it, and it grew into great proportions. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will remove, it really should say, destroy thee from, not destroy, utterly destroy, but destroy thee or remove thee, O covering carob, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, vanity. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Here was wisdom inside. And here was the brilliant beauty outside, and that was the reason why the wisdom on the inside became corrupt, and you became filled with jealousy and vanity. How many times have you known, as you look especially at movie stars, people like Marilyn Monroe, long since moldering in her grave, who was abused and used by the president and his brother and other people? And how many times in life have I seen that, where some people who were cursed with a tremendous amount of physical handsomeness, attractiveness, or beauty couldn't handle it in life, and others who were sort of behind the door when all the good looks were passed out can be some of the most beautiful people you've ever met because they've never had a chance to look into a mirror and say am I beautiful? I'm I'm, I'm quoting my mother. Uh, My mother was told uh, by her aunt and her mother My mother's mother chided her sister for having said that. Don't tell Loma, she's beautiful. And little Loma overheard both of those, and she told a story about running into the bedroom and looking in the mirror and saying, I am pretty, am I? And my mom told me that all of my life. Well, my mother was not corrupted by that, I don't think, but I thought she was a very beautiful woman. She really didn't later on in life. But it says in verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. Jesus Christ of Nazareth achieved complete, total, emotional maturity. There is a doctrine that is being bandied about now by the parent organization that is alleging that Jesus Christ of Nazareth could not have sinned, that it was impossible for him to sin. The Bible absolutely denies that. I want to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we'll talk a little bit about Jesus Christ and his emotions. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, speaking of the word of God, verse 12, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, to which I referred a couple of weeks ago, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, suke and pneuma, the life and the mind, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart." Now here's really something to think about. How many times have you read in the Gospels? Maybe it's been several years since you came across it. I think of one time when Jesus was sitting at Simon the Pharisee's house and a woman washed his feet with her hair. And there were people who were thinking things which were never spoken, and Jesus read their thoughts and actually got right in the middle of a conversation, which up to that point was an unspoken conversation. They hadn't said a word. Jesus read their thoughts and said, Simon, why are you thinking that? And it's right there in the Word of God. And it says, because, quote, Christ knew what was in man, He knew human nature, and their eyes and their faces betrayed them, And he, with the power of God's Holy Spirit, without limit, was able to actually read men's minds and thoughts. So, the Word of God helps you to become a discerner. It gives you discernment. Now, I don't want to be cruel to people, and I've never done something like this probably in 20 years, but I remember going up to one person one time about 20 years ago, was sitting in an audience, and I had noticed this person sitting in the audience in many different occasions, and I had preached many different sermons, and I finally simply talked to the individual and asked the individual, I will not identify by either sex, age, or where, uh, whether or not that individual would like me to go ahead and blow my brains out or cut my throat. Because I informed the individual that, that, that the look of absolute contempt and disgust and hatred Coming out of the face of the individual was something that was hurting that individual. And consequently, I was quite concerned about. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not evident, manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. When we were children, my brother and I gathered up all of the, we called them camels because they had humps in them, but we would walk along the street, I'll explain that, and pick up all the butts of the discarded cigarettes, and this is back during the days when people still smoked bull durum. If you've never seen a bull durum sack, it's a little sack with a drawstring, and it has beneath the band a little packet of little thin papers. Invariably, they wouldn't use all the papers when they got into the bottom of the sack, and sometimes when they got to the bottom of the sack, there'd be a few little grains of tobacco left. We would then also pick up little butts that had been put out with a lip mark on them and a little bit of ash on the other end. And there would be some unburnt tobacco in there and we would collect them all. Well next door there was a guy whose name was Jack and his father had an ancient old wagon out there and the wagon had some boards, it was a high-sided old buckboard kind of a wagon and my brother and I and Jack got down in there and put some boards on the top of it and thought we were completely hidden. and we proceeded to undo all of these cigarettes and we got the papers and we put the tobacco in there and we rolled them out the way we'd seen on the cowboy movies and we licked them and we rolled them and twisted them and the reason we called them camels is because they had humps in them and we lit them and we were happily puffing away and my mother found this because the smoke was pouring out of the knot holes and the cracks in the wagon and we, thought we were thought hid- we thought we were hidden away. My mom sent me to bed and told me to wait for what my father was going to do to me, and she did make a correct prophecy when she told me he was going to thrash my little rear end when he got home, and sure enough, he did. He did. He counted them out, about a hundred or so with a ping-pong paddle. And uh, I didn't try that too many more times, although when I was a teenager I did take up smoking, which I never should have done. There is nothing that we can conceal from God. It's difficult to conceal things like that from your mother, but you know it says men love darkness because their deeds are evil, and it says that the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and nothing is there is nothing. I don't care whether it's a hummingbird or a sparrow, or my thoughts or yours, that is not evident, manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. That means our determination, the statement we have made, the fact that we put our hand to the plow. It doesn't mean that we are professionals in that sense, but the profession of your faith. I will obey God with all my strength, with God's help, because I know I can't do it alone. For we do not have an high priest which cannot be touched. That's moved emotionally. Touch. If you say, I heard this, or I saw that scene, or I read this passage in a book, or she told me this and it touched me, you're talking about the fact that it upset your emotions. You were moved emotionally, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And our infirmities hurt, whether they are emotional, whether they are physical, mental, whatever. Whatever trial we are having. They hurt, but was in all points like as we are, or tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it says, therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in the time of need. Now, in the fifth chapter, notice what it says in verse 6. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order or the rank of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, it was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. That says a tremendous amount in that one verse. Jesus cried. I could turn to the scripture where it says Jesus wept. And we could turn to the scripture where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he just looked at the city and began crying and talking about how They would cast up a mount against it. They would break down its gates. They would rip up the bellies of pregnant women. They would kill women and children and all the terrible things they were going to do. And he stood outside that city and just cried. It says very clearly in the book of John. It also says that Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, when he says, Where have they laid him? And Mary and all the others who were crying said, Come and see. And they were broken up. It says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He didn't just have a little mist in his eye. He wept at that moment. Why? You see a little later that he just very quickly, in a brief prayer, glances up to heaven and says, Father, I thank thee that you have heard me, and I know that you hear me always, but for their sakes who stand by, I said it. And then with a loud voice commanded Lazarus to come out. So that scripture absolutely disproves that he was crying because of the condition of Lazarus that Lazarus was dead and what a terrible thing death was what a terrible loss to know that Lazarus was dead when he knew that he was going to resurrect him no do you know when it says in the Bible that when one rejoices rejoice with him when somebody your brother in the church is cast down and is morose then you are morose and you suffer with him Jesus cried because he saw Mary crying How many times have you seen somebody yawning and it makes you yawn? How many times have you heard tremendous laughter and you don't even know why they're laughing and suddenly you find yourself laughing? Jesus, because of his love for those people, seeing the immense amount of their own hurt as well as lack of faith, because it says he groaned within himself, wept. But what great and perfect control over his emotions. Mary is weeping for a completely different reason because of the loss of Lazarus. And Jesus is weeping because Mary is weeping. And he loved Mary and didn't like to see her hurting that way. His was a sympathetic, empathetic cry. And hers was a hopeless, hurt, hurting cry. Complete different. Now, in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying. Why do that? If Christ could not sin, if it were absolutely impossible for him to sin, why is he crying? Why is he praying? Why is he staying up night times and praying? Why is he bailing out of his blankets at three and four in the morning and going up to a mountain and praying? Why is he flinging himself headlong three times on the ground and praying so hard that either it burst the capillaries and it was real blood, or it is sweat pouring off of his brow like great drops of blood, saying, Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Why this scripture, strong crying. Now, we heard that he wept. He wept over Jerusalem, and he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Now here we're hearing that he actually bawled. I mean strong crying. We're talking about how David wrote, you hear my roaring all night long when he is crying like a broken-hearted little child where all his strength is being poured out in a wail of sound and noise where the entire system is convulsed with this emotion and he is crying. It says here, strong crying. How many times in your life have you prayed like that? How many times in your lifetime have you hardly been able to get a breath in prayer while you're calling out to God, Oh, Father, forgive me. Now, Jesus Christ was not praying for forgiveness. He was praying for strength. He was praying for faith. Why was he? If he knew that it was utterly impossible for him to sin, why did he go through all of that? And the tears were unto him and was able to save him from death. Was it possible for him to have met death earlier than at the moment God finally allowed? Oh, yes, they tried to kill him at the very beginning of his earthly ministry in Nazareth, tried to hurl him off a cliff because he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. They tried to kill him in the temple. They tried to kill him in different synagogues. They tried to kill him in Jerusalem. On many occasions they were lying in wait for him, and he would escape out of the midst of a group of people who were intent on doing murder. And Jesus was saved from death in that he feared. What did he fear? He feared not being able in every situation, no matter how troublous, no matter how painful, no matter how tempting, no matter how desirable not being able to control himself and to say no with the power of God's Spirit. When Jesus was beset upon, when Jesus was spit upon, he didn't think of spitting back, how do I get even? He thought, I've got to pray, I've got to have more strength. How often do we react in a moment when we feel this eggbeater, going in there, this emotion which, after all, is an excitation of our feelings which begin to churn up in us, and immediately think, I've got to pray. I've got to get someplace and, and, and pray right now. I need to pray now. I feel myself getting heated up. I feel myself being tempted. I feel myself thinking a lot of evil thoughts. I, I feel my my thoughts wandering over here into some forbidden, uh, forbidden territory. I've got to pray. I've got to pray right now. I've got to get the strength. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered." You cannot understand that scripture in the light of some doctrine that claims your Savior and mine could not have sinned. The possibility for Christ to have sinned has to be there, or he simply cannot be your Savior. He cannot turn to God the Father and say, I know what they feel, I know what they're going through, I know what they are suffering, I have been there. He can't be capable and qualified to turn to God and to say, I understand everything that they're going through, unless he learned all of these things in a process, and as I've said in in times past, the sacrifice of Christ did not take place in about a 17-hour period. It took place in a 33 and one half year lifespan. It took place in the very fact that he emptied himself and became of no repute and became like the seed of Abraham and was born of the Virgin Mary and took upon himself human flesh. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was perfect in character. Could Jesus Christ dunk a basketball I doubt that very much. He probably was of shorter stature than I am. And if if so, not much taller. Doubt that very much. The game hadn't even been invented anybody anyway. And he might not have played the game because maybe it was the kind of a sport that, that he would have said, well, there's too much body contact and I don't want to hurt anybody. Who knows? No. were there a th- Could Jesus Christ have broken the four-minute mile? You ever ask yourself, you think of Christ as perfect. Yes, he was perfect, but how was he perfect? He was perfect in character. He was a perfect person inside. Now, he was perfect physically and humanly, but that doesn't mean there weren't corns and calluses that could grow on that flesh. But it does mean that inside, with his mind and his nature and his character, that he was absolutely beautiful in God's sight, he was flawless and he was perfect. He was a gentlest person. You know, when Martha came, we think of the Martha-ism and the Martha uh, attitude of some women. Make Mary get up and help me, Lord. Martha, Martha, Martha. She's chosen the best part. You're very burdened and very concerned with many, many things, aren't you? You're really put upon because of that kitchen. And Jesus understood how a woman with a group of guests there can bustle around the kitchen and just get irritated at her sister who is sitting there listening to Jesus. Why doesn't that lazy woman get up and help me? And Jesus just had to kind of click his tongue and say, Martha, Martha, you sure are burdened upon. You've got a lot of chores to do. I guess Martha got the point. But it's beautiful how gently he chided her and how he put it, how he said it to her. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, if we will turn to that, one of the most beautiful chapters in the writings of the Apostle Paul, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing, enduring one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. But that is one spiritual body made up of scattered individuals who are joined by the power of God's Holy Spirit to their high priest and Savior in heaven above. It is not a body that is gathered together in a computer list, or a body that is gathered together by a legal document, or a body that has a particular crest or a sign or a label on the letterhead. It is a body which is made up of scattered people all over this world in whom is the Holy Spirit of God one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all. Sometimes some people, I think, forget that. And through all, and in you all, and unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And maybe it differs. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts, spiritual, heavenly gifts, unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the tomb, the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and so on. And I won't read all of that, but that's for the perfecting, verse 12, of the saints, and for the work of the ministry, for the building up and the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and we're not there yet, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and you know, it seems there is always something more to learn about Jesus Christ. Something more to learn about his nature, about his mind and his emotions and the way he lived life and the way he responded to people. We don't know it all yet about Jesus Christ. Till we come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Christ was a perfect man. I'm not, you're not. And I doubt if we will be by the time of our death or the resurrection or the change, instantaneous change, whichever comes first. But we've got to strive toward that on a daily basis, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children. Now, I love my precious little granddaughter. Have you ever watched a child, and it's a delight just to watch them. She comes over to my house, she comes up by my uh, little table there where I'm sitting. And she will reach out, and she's so delicate, and she'll point to something. I'll let her know if she can have it. Maybe it's my keys. She loves to play with keys. And now she's beginning to say key, and so she'll pick them up. And she'll just look at them for the longest time. No, no, don't put them in your mouth. And she won't put them in her mouth. And she'll walk around with the keys, and pretty soon she'll see something else. Drop the keys, pick that up, and look at it. And she'll walk over here, and she'll see something else. She'll drop the first, second thing, she'll pick that up. And after a while, and it's so cute, we don't mind it. When she's been there, my wife and I are laughing and saying, Look here, what Sonia D did. Here's this toy, there's that toy, here's this book, there's my keys. And one day, I think it was a few weeks ago, uh, I forget what it was that Cheryl couldn't find, maybe her purse, it was something. But we've got a lower drawer in our kitchen, and it's a kind of a junk drawer. It has all kinds of string and utensils and stuff in it. And it's like a treasure house for a little child. And she will open that thing up and look in there and pull things out of it. And Cheryl was looking at everything for whatever it was, a, a purse or keys or something she had lost. Her purse, I think, couldn't find it in the whole house. It was in that drawer, and Sonia D. had closed the drawer. She'd gone in there, taken that purse she was playing with, put it in there and closed the drawer and walked away. And it took my wife like two days to find it. Now, it's interesting, and we were all like that, and some of us still are. The attention span of Americans on television is incredible. And with the remote control device, it's really short. I mean, sometimes they just go around all night long. And somebody will end up, it's been an hour and a half, and I haven't stopped more than five seconds on a single channel. And I'm wondering why I have a headache. But anyway, you know, people are like that. Now, there is something to be learned right here that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. Children can't have their attention just tossed to and fro. Religious hobbyists are like that. They like to listen to all of it. No matter what God says, if any come and bring not this doctrine, do not ask them in and do not bid them God's speed, Because the person that bids them God's speed is a partaker of their evil deeds. I got a letter the other day from a gentleman. I had to write a long letter back. He'd been listening to this guy and reading literature, and this guy had all kinds of arguments against God and against the Bible. He was an atheist. An abject atheist who had formerly been a so-called Christian preacher and had lost his faith and was now just hateful toward God. And it really bothered this gentleman, and he wanted me to answer all of these things. And I did as best I could, but I also told him, you're barking up the wrong tree if you're asking me to come up with the magical formula of that one beautiful argument that you can just hit this guy with. He'll say, oh, well, you're right, I'm wrong. I shouldn't be an atheist after all. I hereby repent and see the truth. It'll never happen. It will never happen. When Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees, Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall in the ditch. What did he mean? He meant, let them alone. Leave them alone. Don't listen to them. Don't stand around and argue with them. Don't enjoy a good Sabbath morning with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses on your front door. Just quietly shut the door and say, No thanks. Now, if you want to disobey God, and you want to to get involved in all of that, and go ahead and enter, you know, they they come and they are bringing out that doctrine, and they're dyed in the wool, they're absolutely staunch, and they're there for the purpose of getting you to change what you believe. You're never going to change what they believe, not when they're a professional out beating the path to the door and trying to get you to accept their literature. You're just not going to do it. But people will try, contrary to what God says. We henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Jesus Christ was utterly and totally mature. He was in control of his emotions. It was impossible for Jesus Christ to fly off the handle. Now, Jesus Christ was perfectly qualified at the time that God resurrected him once again to inherit that great limitless power which he had divested, which he had left behind in heaven above to limit himself as a human being in that struggle, that sacrifice of a human lifespan on this earth. He was fully qualified once again to reign in heaven above. Now, in what way was he even more qualified than ever before? Well, because he took back with him to heaven the whole human experience. He still has it. All that experience is vivid in his memory. Christ, with his brilliant mind, can remember the exact facial expression of Simon the Pharisee. He can remember exactly how Peter looked when he grabbed him, when Peter grabbed Christ and said, that will not be so, Lord. Get thee behind me, Satan. He can remember what Peter looked like and whether he had a beard or didn't. I mean, you and I don't know, but Jesus sitting up at God's right hand, he knows exactly what those people looked like. He remembers every experience he had as a human being, and he calls upon those when we approach him in prayer to beg him to take away from us the trials and the troubles that we have. Now, I want to leave you with a thought before I close here of something that I've covered only in part, and perhaps I don't have time to cover it in whole today, as we turn to Psalm 103, and that is this. I finally came to understand about a year and a half ago, whenever it was that I told you about it, a little more deeply than I had before, this scripture that Jesus Christ tells us that if your right eye offends you, to pluck it out. throw it away from you, or if your hand offends you, to cut it off and cast it away because it's better for you to enter into life maimed, having only one hand or having only one eye, than to lose out and to be cast into Gehenna fire. Obviously, since the Bible has proscriptions against maiming or blinding yourself or cutting off a hand, and still obviously because it is an act of the mind and the conscience and the character to reach out and steal, and you've still got another hand you can still steal with and you can still see with the other eye, though not quite as good, if you're lusting after something with the eye, then it is a very powerful metaphor that is meant to really explain something to us. And I believe that it is simply that those things that sometimes are so absolutely dear and so desirable and so we lust after them so much that we just can't live without them, we think, Are the things that Christ is referring to He's not talking about some sin That besets you That's real easy to turn off Like some dumb TV set He's talking about something That really is about to cause you To lose your salvation And cutting that out And throwing it out of your mind And your emotion And your character Is, as I characterized it In my sermon some time ago Like emergency surgery And it hurts it hurts to do that. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth can ease the pain because he is the great physician to heal all of our problems. It says so in Psalm 103, Bless the eternal, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. says it again, bless the eternal, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. Think about that. I ask you at the beginning of this message, you know, talking about myself a little bit, but I sure hope that I've never gotten God so angry that he lost his temper. Well, I haven't, because God never loses his temper. But if God ever lost his temper, he could squash you the same way you step on an ant outside this building and don't even know it, couldn't he? Just poof, you'd be gone. Now, God wasn't mad at Uzzah. But Uzzah had no business reaching up, trying to steady the ark. No man was allowed to touch that ark except the Levites, and he had no business doing it. And as a witness to everybody else, it was painless, it was euthanasia. He didn't feel anything. He was alive one minute, and in the next minute he'll be in the kingdom of God and say, what happened, Uzzah? You touched that ark. You know, it didn't hurt him. He didn't lie there twitching and kicking, but God smote him, and he died to show his great power. I'm just pointing out God has the power to do you in. He has the power to allow other circumstances to do it. got the power to allow a 747 to come through this roof right now. if That's what he wants to do, hasn't he? got a power. You're walking along just to open up the sidewalk and you disappear. People go by and say, what happened? There's a crack in the sidewalk. He did that to Korah. And all the people that pertained to him when they rebelled against Moses, didn't he? He's got that power. But he doesn't ever lose his temper who forgiveth all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. Sure, we perfunctually say, uh, bless this food to our good, and so on. But sometimes it's good, you know, in a special meal, and the Feast of Tabernacles is upcoming to thank several times through that meal. I like to really just elaborate on a meal sometimes. I'll never forget time when we were in Switzerland with some dear friends, and I've got a beautiful little uh, frame on my wall, and there is the label of a wine bottle. That was a Saint-Emilion, I believe, 1947. Well, I had a card that said that the vintage year, it was absolutely perfect. There were straight sevens on this particular card or a 10 on the other card. Right down the line in France was 1947. This was probably in about 1973, 4, whenever it was, 2 or 3. And we were with Lyle Christofferson and his wife in his lovely old hotel restaurant. And I couldn't believe that it said on that wine list, they had a bottle of 1947 wine, and we ordered it with our steaks, and we sat there, okay, I said, we're going to play a game, every one of us are going to start talking about what we were doing when the wine was put in this bottle in 1947, that was the year I got out of high school, and my wife is five years younger than I, so she remembered that she was up here at Big Sandy helping her parents run that little lake concession and skating rink and of course Lyle and Marcia had all the things that they were talking about we had the most absolutely delightful meeting so when I'm down there Captain Anderson's at Panama City Beach and I order me a a tuna steak and I look at that fantastic firm flesh and I'm eating a bite of it I'm thinking you know, only a few days ago that fish was 1500 feet deep out there about 60 miles from around chasing some kind of mackerel and I'm thinking about how God designed that fish if you've ever caught a great big tuna you just stand in awe of how beautiful they are iridescent When they come out of the water and shape like a bullet, unbelievable power. And I think about those things and try, you know, as much as I can. And certainly there's no place like that, like an elk camp, way up at Timberline in the Colorado Mountains, to really be thankful for the food. "...but who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Eternal executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He has made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel." The Eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. Sometimes you and I will. And we'll just keep it up, won't we? We'll just keep picking at it. It's like you got a scab and you just like to watch it bleed. You're not going to let it heal. Just pick at it. No, he will not always do that. God will not always chide human beings. Yeah, But are we supposed to keep doing that? Or are we supposed to grow in maturity as Jesus Christ? He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities those that fear him. Now, when you sit quietly in church, you're showing fear and awe of God. When you address him in prayer, you're showing fear and awe toward God. Don't ever throw a tantrum toward God. Don't ever scream at God, don't ever curse his name, don't ever shake your fist in his face, because you wouldn't want to elicit the same response in return. Don't ever make him mad. Pray, as David did, for correction. Pray, correct me, O eternal, it shall be a kindness. Smite me, it'll be like oil running down over my beard, not in thine anger, lest you bring me to nothing, but in mercy." How thankful I am that my creator God has never gotten mad at me.